0: All right, Duke fans, this is going to be a special one. Welcome to episode 194 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I am Jason Evans. I'm hosting this week, as always. I'm joined by Sam Klein and Donald Wine. Guys, we got a good one for the people right now. A couple days ago, uh, I sent an email and I got a response, and we're going to get to talk to none other than Jay Billis, a Duke illustrator. The Billistrator is on, is in the house. Yes, we're really, really excited about this one. It's a great interview. We had a ton of fun. He he talked about his time at Duke back when I was there as well. He, Jay and I are, he's just a couple of years older, older than I am. Uh, he talked about uh, his time as an assistant coach. He talked about the current state of college basketball. He talked about the Duke team. Take it away. Here's our interview with Jay Billis. So, Duke fans, the Duke Basketball Report podcast is thrilled right now to bring you a true Duke legend. Uh, we are uh, uh, so excited to be joined by none other than Jay Billis, a, a former player, a former assistant coach, and now one of the leading voices in all of college basketball from his role at ESPN. Jay, thanks so much for being with us here on the DBR podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Great to be with you guys. So we've got, we got a ton of different things we want to chat with you about I want to start if I can back in the past because you don't know this about me, but I was, uh, I was class of 89. So I was there for your senior year. Um, Like you, I'm an old guy. And uh, uh, you know, I thrilled my freshman season to see what you, what you guys did. Um, You and Johnny and David Henderson, I could go on and on. I know everything about that team, obviously, but give me your really quick, just your reflection on that season uh, you know, making it all the way to the finals. Uh, you know, I still hate Louisville. I hope you still hate Louisville as much as I do. <laughs> uh, but, but just talk to me really quickly. What what that was like that run? Um, you know, coming from a a team that struggled. You struggled mightily as a freshman. To what you guys did as as seniors.
1: Yeah, it was uh, it was a, an amazing experience all the way around. It was just a different time. You know, Coach K was brand new there when uh, when that class of 86 had committed to him. And, and uh, so we, we started all freshmen, our freshman year in a league full of juniors and seniors and lottery picks. And um, so it was a difficult year. I mean, we lost a lot of close games. We got blown out a few times. But uh, uh, after that, you know, our sophomore year we were nationally ranked, and our junior year we were number two in the country for a period, and, and nationally ranked. And you know that. But those were uh, my sophomore year was Coach K's first. Ever, my first ever tournament game was his first ever. So when we got to uh, to 1986, we felt like we were the best team. And uh, and before the season began, all the players kind of got together and we looked at the schedule and just said, "All right, show. It. Let, let's find the games we can't win." And we realized, well, there's, there wasn't a game we couldn't win. So we just said, well, let's win each game. And uh, and Coach K did something he had never done before that year. He kind of broke the season down into segments. And, you know, our first four games were like, well, this is segment number one, and our goal is to be 4-0 and, uh, and all that. And so by the end of the year, we really didn't know what our record was. We just sort of kept a a short horizon. And it was really, I thought, really helpful uh, and we did the same thing. He did the same thing with the NCAA tournament. We broke it down into each weekend was a four-team tournament. That just made it more digestible for us. Um, and it's just the you know the way it ended wasn't great. And you know I like I don't hate Louisville. Actually, I love Louisville. I just hate hated losing to them in that game because uh, that's a it's an amazing program and great people and great players. But um, you know if we had won that game, I think I think. Uh, people would have looked at that, at that team, a a heck of a lot differently. I think it would have been considered one of the, one of the great teams ever really.
0: I know I, I, I lament, you know, I obviously am not nearly as connected to it as you are, but I constantly lament the fact that we did not get that final game because it would have made a huge, huge difference in where that team falls in history. And I agree with you. It would have been easily one of the greatest of all time. So it's kind of amazing. We, you make the Final Four as a senior uh, or sorry, you know, your senior year, my freshman year. And then suddenly we go on this run. You you were part of that Final Four run because you were an assistant coach for several years. Um, when you were in law school, you were a grad assistant. Talk a little bit about if you can really quick your time as an assistant coach at Duke and the unbelievable success we had during those years.
1: Yeah, it was great. I mean, obviously, Duke had gone to the Final Four in 88, in, uh, and 89. Um, but, but had not broken through to the championship game. And and in, in 90, I got there 89, 90 after I played pro ball in Europe for a few years. And, uh, when, you know, my three years as a, as a grad assistant there, we went to the title game, the NCAA title game every year. And so it was a little bit like Disneyland. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of losing. Um, but it was a great group of players, and I remember Tommy Amaker and Mike Bray and I used to stand on the court before practice, and we would just look at the players and go, "How much money is out there?" Because uh, you knew Grant Hill was going to be an all-time great, and and he was, uh, and that how good Leitner and Hurley were, and uh, Thomas Hill, all that. It was just ridiculous how talented the players were, and uh, and it was a it was a fun time because it was still, you know, part of the climb. You know, when when once that second title was won, um, Duke was a different place and uh and I think the expectations changed a lot. So now the players the the players now get more benefit than than players did back then. There there's more that comes with it, but there's also more pressure and and, and spotlight and responsibility that goes with uh with being a basketball player than, than back then. Jay,
2: in your current role as an ESPN analyst, we're going to shift gears now to the 2019-2020 to the Duke team. In your current role, you've seen obviously quite a bit of Duke basketball so far this year. From what you've seen, are we looking at a team that can win it all? And what do you think is the biggest area of concern for them as we approach March?
1: Well, in, in this year, Duke can absolutely win, win the title. Um, this is not a year full of, um, overwhelmingly talented teams and, uh, and what, what we would consider, I don't want to say great teams. Cause I think Baylor, Kansas, you know, even Duke, like th- those teams have, uh, have put up great records and it's hard to say that, that they're not, they're not great. Uh, especially the way we tend to overuse the term great in our society. Everybody's great. Um, but especially when you talk about coaches, if you listen to any post-game press conference, the guy they just beat is a great coach. Everybody's a great coach, um, but but we don't have the sort of power that we've seen in past years. Like it's not like twenty fifteen where you know Kentucky was was uh, undefeated and and you knew that Duke and Wisconsin were Final Four teams unless they had a a, a flat tire on the way to the game they were going. Um, this year you don't know. Uh, Duke is as good, I think, as good as anybody. But they're not, they're, they're not experienced, and, and they don't have a lot of go-to scorers. Uh, they've got the best point guard in the country, in my judgment, with, with Trey Jones, and then Vernon Carey is extraordinary. I mean, he's just a fantastic low-post player and such a threat. Um, Duke's best attribute is their, their depth and their defense, because uh, they can really guard. But, uh, but they're, they're not a team that, that you know, I think, can overwhelm you with talent. And uh, so they can, uh, I think they're like a lot of teams where they can be beaten, but there's nobody out there they cannot beat. It's a little bit like 2010, but but uh, the landscape is like 2010. And you'll, you'll recall that Duke won the title that year, won the ACC, but Duke was way more experienced that year. And that's what this team is lacking is high level experience.
2: And you've been around a lot of Duke teams from your time as a player to your time as an assistant coach to now. It obviously, you know a lot of things change. A lot of things remain the same. Ignoring the obvious features, like the guys on the sideline, Coach K at the helm, how can you tell that this iteration? How can fans tell that this iteration of Duke is a Duke team? And what are the features that Coach K, to you, always has in his teams?
1: Well, I, every team's different. Even every Duke team, and and they have different um, different strengths, and they have different different weaknesses. Uh, This team's strength is like I don't think this team is all that much deeper than teams Coach K has had in the past. It's just that he has to use the depth this year. And it's a it's a better feature for it than in years past, because there's not as much separation between the starters and the uh, and the bench. Uh, And give you an example, like last year, you had, you know, Zion and and RJ and and Trey and Cam and all that. You know, you're not going to take those guys off the floor for extended minutes in favor of bench players, even though the bench isn't that much different this year than last year uh, or, or in years past. Um, it's just that, that this year, you know, y- you've got a little bit more versatility and, and there's not as much separation. So matchups determine who plays this year. And, you know, if you're playing a, a super athletic team and, and really strong physical front line, maybe Matthew Hurt doesn't play as much. Maybe it's Wendell Moore that plays more in that particular game, stuff like that um so you're you're seeing that kind of they've got really good lineup versatility but they need all 10 guys to be able to play and uh and they need to defend to be able to win uh and you know that that's I think that's a a staple that Duke's always been really good defensively that's been where they've started there have been years where they haven't been as good uh but but they've always been good and uh and they've always uh I think let it fly on offense they may play differently on offense but but coach k has never taken his foot off the gas he's always uh, always wanted to score and get up and down the floor uh they're, they've they just been different adaptations to the way he's played
2: you mentioned the depth has and, and the fact that he's had to use it Quite a bit this year, probably more than years past. Do you think Coach K goes into a season every year looking to separate that depth, or does it just happen to work out where we go from ten down to you know seven or eight guys?
1: Yeah, I think in my memory of being an assistant there, we went into years where he would say, "Hey, we're going to be able to play this many guys, and we're going to be able to do this, and we'll be able to press," and then you know, you get into the dog days of the season and you're cutting down on that. Uh, so it winds up getting down to seven guys and all that, uh, or eight guys, whatever it is. Um, so I, I do think you have maybe have some grander plans when you're putting it down on paper and, and, uh, but I, I, I don't think he goes in with, with a set notion of what's going to happen. He's going to adapt to whatever, whatever he sees during the course of the year um, but this year, I, I think, you know, you, you pretty much knew going in that you're going to have to play more people that you didn't have the same kind of star power. I mean, last year you had two guys that averaged over 22 points a game. You know, you're going to have to make up those points somewhere this year. You're not going to get it from one guy. You know, Trey Jones has had to be a, a better offensive player and doesn't take way more shots, uh, and has done a really good job of that. He's been, become a really good scorer. Uh, whereas last year that wasn't, that wasn't in the cards for him. Um, but I, I don't think he goes in with quite a set plan, um, uh, and, and he's really good at, like, one thing Coach K does, I think, as well as anybody, if not better, is he's not stuck on, well, this is how we play. you know the, he, He's going he's gonna to determine what's the best thing, how are we going to win, and then he'll play the way you need to play in order to win. He's not as worried about, well, this is the way we play, so we're going to play this way, and we'll absorb these losses to play the way we play. Uh, He doesn't do that. He doesn't recruit to a system. He recruits players and then kind of tailors the system to the players, if that makes sense.
3: Jay, is there a time in the season where Coach K feels like he needs to have the strategy in place? Does that, um, you know, because it can't all come in the preseason before they've played anybody. But at some point down the road, he has to sort of decide on the on the what the rotation looks like. At what point in the season does that happen?
1: It, 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 everything changes all the time, or at least it can change all the time. I mean, you, you might have, have times where you get to the end of the season and guys are hurt or things like that, uh, where you make changes or you take somebody out of the starting lineup. And this year there, it's more game to game as to who starts and who plays more minutes as from what I, you know, from what I see. Uh, but I, I don't think he has a set notion of things. He's been doing this so long. He he trusts his judgment and his gut about uh, what to do, Um, and, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's, like, he'll make a change um, at halftime and, uh, you know, start a different guy or based on what he sees and what he feels about how it's going. So, I don't think he's wedded anything, and especially with the credibility he has, um, not only, you know, outside his program, but inside of it. uh, If he says, hey, we're going to do this, the players uh, pretty much get on board because they know there's a lot of heft behind it, um, it may be difficult for a younger coach or a coach that does not want as much when, when you say something, the players are kind of going, oh, I don't know. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of hand bringing among the players going, well, I don't know. I don't really trust his judgment. How long has he been doing this? You know, <laughs> they're they're pretty good about it. <laughs> how was the, uh,
3: how was the Duke old timers group chat when coach K started playing more zone in the last few years?
1: Uh, well, we don't have a group chat. Um, so I, I don't, I, I think guys would have rather played zone back in the day. We, we actually played some zone when, when we got in foul trouble, it just wasn't a very good zone. He's learned a lot more about it, uh, after having, you know, spent time at USA basketball and spent so much time with Jim Bayheim and all that. And I think he's more open to it. Um, you know, back when, when I played, you know, in the short shorts era, when black and white photos were taken in Cameron, um, you know, we we played man to man. We ran motion offense. Uh, we wore Adidas. You know, the the world was totally different. Uh, we didn't have a lot of plays. And you know, like when when the old men get around and talk about how the young players today don't know how to play, I always start laughing at them. And you know, especially when when guys uh, my age will talk about, well, the big guys, you know, they don't do this and don't do that. I'll start laughing and say, you know, we didn't have to run out and guard ball screens like these guys have to do. We didn't have to. We didn't have to do what they have to do. Um, I played four years under Coach K. I don't think I ever guarded a ball screen. Uh, w- we didn't have to do that. That wasn't the way the game was played back then. There weren't ball screens. You know, everybody ran motion, or they ran flex, or they ran continuity. Uh, you didn't have ball screen offenses like you have now. And double uh, handoff, big men could,
0: weaves. Jay, big men couldn't shoot back in your day. You you did not shoot, right?
1: <laughs> oh, we could we could shoot. We weren't allowed to. You could absolutely shoot. But you didn't have a three-point line. So what good was it to shoot a bunch of – a bunch of perimeter shots like Mark gallery was one of the best big man shooters in ACC history. But uh, you know, when, when people say the mid range shot is dead, it's dead for a reason. It's dead because it's a low value shot. And, uh, and so we took mid range shots because they were a better value shot than a longer, two, a longer two, everything was a two back then. So if you took a 25 foot two, why would you do that when you could get to, to a 12 foot two and it was a higher percentage shot? Uh, you know now uh, the percentages say you know layup because it's a it's the highest percentage and most likely to get fouled and three, so really with the th- right now with the three point line moving back, the teams that are making mistakes are the ones that have have given up threes in favor of mid range twos, and um, uh, they they actually even though they might shoot a lower percentage from three, it's actually a, still a higher value shot than taking the mid range two.
3: Jay, I want to transition a little bit to talking about kind of the rest of college basketball, the top teams this year, the, the sort of set that we're kind of looking at as the ones and two seeds look a little different than they've been in the last few years. Obviously, Kansas and Gonzaga are there, but you have teams like Baylor, San Diego State, Dayton, who are at the top of college basketball. Do you attribute that change to anything that, that there are so many new programs sort of breaking into the top ranks or is this going to become the new normal with you know more players leaving and and more uncertainty in the in the coaching ranks something like that
1: Yeah I don't I don't necessarily think it's the new normal because I think normal would if that was normal normal would have hit us years ago because we we've been in the one and done and transfer era for a long time and really the transfers are not what they're made out to be the coaches make it out to be like it's some epidemic and it's really not that big of a deal um it is difficult to keep a roster together but it always has been uh, especially in the modern era, I should say it, it, it has been. Um, so I don't think it's the new normal. I just think it's a you know North Carolina is not as good this year. UCLA is down. Indiana is not as good. We, we have a lot of programs that have been traditionally really good that aren't as good this year, because we weren't worried about normal the new normal last year. Um, it's just one of those years. So I'm not. We had the same thing in 2010 and 2011, where you had um, you know a lot of smaller, you had a number of smaller programs that, that were jumping up and some of the blue bloods weren't quite as good. Like you'll remember 2010, like North Carolina didn't make the tournament 2010. And, uh, uh, and, you know, in 2000, 2011, you know, you had uh, 2010 and 11, you had Butler making the the championship game and you had uh, uh, you know, VCU, you know, you had things like that. Um, Could we have that this year? I think it's possible. Uh, but I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a long term trend. Um, you know, you guys know one data point doesn't make a trend, and this is one data point. So San Diego State's really good, but it's a year in which there is not overwhelming power on any sort of in any conference. Like I don't think it takes a genius to look at the ACC and go, the "League's not as good this year." It's just not. And we, you know, you can't look at metrics and say in other years it's the best league and then ignore the fact that it's not as good this year. Like you know, everybody seems to be down, and uh, you know Duke's not, but Duke's not as powerful as they were last year. Um, their record's as good, but they're not as powerful. And, uh, um, and North Carolina's no—I mean, they were a number one seed last year, and they can't—they can't seem to find a win this year. Um, so uh, you know, it's just a—it's just a different kind of year. The SEC is nowhere near as good as it was. The Big Ten is—is is really good. But they don't have their top teams, I wouldn't say, are better than the ACC's top teams. So they've got, they've got um, balance but not power, if that makes sense.
3: Yeah, and of those teams that are sort of at the top who you wouldn't expect to be there, um, which of them do you feel like is the – I don't want you to have to pick the whole tournament or the Final Four or anything, but which of those teams may be among the Baylor, San Diego State, Dayton group Do you think is is the most prepared to do well in March? Because they're they're probably coming to this from a they're probably coming to the success um, maybe not the traditional way um, with just recruiting the top guys and and letting them go the way that say maybe a a Duke or a Kentucky or a Kansas does. Which of them do you believe in the most going into March?
1: Probably Baylor. Uh, Like you know, Baylor's been number one in the past several years. It's not the first time they've been number one. So you know they're they're in the Big Twelve. They've been really good for a long long time. Um, so I think they're probably in the best position. But they're they're a little bit like Duke on the uh, no, they're not like Duke. I shouldn't say that. They're, they're they're on the offensive end. Like Duke's a better offensive team than Baylor. Baylor's just older and uh, and they're they're a little bit physically tougher. I would say, um, but Baylor doesn't score it easy uh they're really good on the offensive glass and really good really good defensively and they've got four guards that can make plays but they're not like this crazy good three point shooting team they're they're ranked uh 20 something in in uh, offense offensive efficiency um they can just guard and go get extra possessions um so I, I think they're really good uh i don't think they're the favorite i think actually Kansas is probably a little bit better but we'll see on sat you know we'll see when they play again uh, as to as to who wins out there, um, San Diego State's legit. They're they're very very good. Uh, they can make a lot of threes. Um, they've got a number of of really good guards. Uh, Malachi Flynn is their best guard who transferred in from Washington State. They got a bunch of transfers, and so they're a little bit older and they kind of get it. Um, they're a little bit vulnerable w- with their big guy position. They've got a guy named Yanni Wetzel transferred in from Vanderbilt who's very good but uh, he can get exposed in ball screen situations where they can go at him. If he gets in foul trouble, that puts him in a, in a really bad spot. And I think that's a, that's something that we'll see in the tournament. We'll see how they handle it. And then I think Dayton is in the best position to do something really special just because they've got a, they've got a legit lottery pick leading the way in uh, Obi Toppin and then their guards are really good. Like, uh, you know, they've got Rodney Chapman and Jalen Crutcher are both point guards and they're they're really good um so I would not be and they've got everything they've got role players they've got older guys uh multiple scorers um I I think they're the team that could be kind of like a Butler they're not quite as good as Butler was in, in 2010 and 11 but they're really good
0: hey we're gonna have to take a quick break from the interview with Jay but we will be back in just a moment Hey, Jay, I want to I move to another different uh, arena where we know you are a huge advocate. Uh, we're, we're ta- we talk a lot in this podcast uh, about the pay the players debate and some of the horrible ways the NCAA has handled its treatment of the players. And um, I, I, I went on a 10 minute rant last week about Mark Emmert's congressional <laughs> testimony and uh, and him asking Congress to fix his problems for him. You, you have been at the absolute forefront of this debate and, and advocating for change in the NCAA. I wanna do this, I wanna give you a magic wand, and I'm gonna tell you that you can remake the rules of college basketball however you want them to be. I'm talking about the rules about, you know, paying the players and player movement and that kind of stuff, not, not you know, the the three-point line or anything like that. So uh, Jay Billis has a magic wand. What is Jay Billis's version of the future of college hoops?
1: oh it would be really easy um i would just uh eliminate the amateurism uh, rules and just say everybody can do what they want um so for eligibility for player eligibility all you would need to do is be enrolled in as a full-time student and in good standing and you're eligible and then it's the decision of the school as to how they choose to treat their their players like, it's really funny. And look, reasonable minds can differ, and I have no problem with how people look at this. That's fine. But there are certain things that are, that are just flat-out true. So when people say that, that while well, the players are being, being paid. They're getting a scholarship and a stipend. Well, other non-athlete students get scholarships and stipends. Are they paid? What are they paid for? And then if they're paid, why are they not restricted in what they can earn or accept while they're enrolled in school? I mean, Emma Watson went to Brown. She acted in the school play at Brown but she also, while she was acting in the school play, she made a movie and made $15 million. That didn't affect her standing as a student, but you know, she was still a full-time student, enrolled full-time. Uh, her, her papers weren't graded any differently. They weren't put in the professional pile and somehow graded differently. She wasn't an employee of Brown University because she made money outside of the university. Um, these schools like Duke, w- with a place which I love and, and has spent a million years on that campus, um, Duke has 30,000 employees. Like they know who to pay and they know what their value is. And they know how much to pay them. Uh, they know whom to recruit and whom to put in the game when they want to win. And coach K doesn't wring his hand saying, God, it's unfair that I play Zion Williamson more than Jack White. I mean, we we don't want problems in the locker room. It's not that hard. Uh, people understand meritocracies. It's not that big of a deal. So if Duke wants to pay or not pay, that's fine. I trust Duke to make those decisions, just like I trust Kentucky and UNLV and Harvard and all these other places. Um, they can make those decisions on their own. And so let's stop micromanaging this. Let's stop running a cartel. Uh, and, and let's admit what this is. It's a multi-billion dollar business that is run by and played by adults. Like these are not kids. Um, we call them kids. And by calling them kids, we infantilize them. Uh, They're adults. And, and they're allowed to sign contracts. And so if you want to sign them to a contract, sign them to one. Uh, what would happen, in my judgment, is that if, if you were allowed to sign contracts or players could sign uh, name, image, and likeness deals and Zion Williamson or Trey Jones could have a deal with, uh, with Nike or McDonald's or whatever, they would. You know, those things are done via contract. So there would be clauses in the contract that say, all right, Trey Jones, if you get in any sort of trouble off the court, uh, we get to terminate if you transfer we get to terminate if you're academically ineligible we get to terminate you know you'd have all those things um and the school could do the same thing it's the same as their contract with coach k or kevin white or all those other things it's a simple process and the free market works wonderfully well for everyone in In this country, and the idea it wouldn't work for college athletes is is absurd. And uh, the NCAA is finding that out because their transfer rules are are being exposed as unjustifiable. Um, they can't, they're they're losing court cases and being uh, ruled to have violated federal antitrust law. And now, when all the NCAA has to do, is is pass rules like they're saying now because of these these different state laws on name image likeness we can't run uh, a fair competition with different state laws well that's absurd on its face because you have different tax laws different employment laws different labor laws in every state you know they're not saying hey we can't run fair competition if california if uh if texas and florida are going to have no state income tax i mean every good coach is going to run to florida and texas i mean that's absurd we can't do this they don't say that You know, they run to Congress because the players are going to get more and they're saying, do our jobs for us. All they have to do is pass a rule that says um, everyone, every school can give at least what California is giving. They can give more if they want, but they can give at least that. And then you have fair competition. No problem. They just don't want to. And uh, and that's really what this comes down to. They're saying, hey, government, please give us an antitrust exemption so we can continue to do what we've been doing for the last 120 years, and that is sell these athletes for billions of dollars, but claim that it's amateur. And, uh, and I have a real conceptual problem with that. I have since I was in college, uh, and I brought it up. I was on the NCAA's Long Range Planning Committee when I was in college, and I brought it up all the time and, uh, and got shot down every time that it was brought up. I brought the transfer rules up, got shot down, but you know because I knew what got rewarded, I went out and, you know, parroted the party line when I was in public, but, uh, but it's unjustifiable. And I think most, most fair-minded people realize that.
0: So Jay, we could keep this conversation. We would love to keep this conversation going forever, but we know you have limited time. So we're about to wrap up. I do want to do one thing with you that I do with every single former Duke player, former coach K player that we have on this podcast. I ask them for a great coach K story. Now you are in a unique position. Because you have Coach K stories from when you were a player, and you have Coach K stories from when you were an assistant coach. So I'm tempted to ask you for two great Coach K stories. Am I allowed to do that?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, there are so many, it's kind of hard to, to pick them out, but folks have probably heard this, uh, this one, but, it, but it, it was still my favorite. Um, you know, Coach K always kind of gives these these passionate speeches to the team. And especially back then, I, I'm i not in, in the locker room as much now, obviously. But um, he gave us this speech one time about how we needed to do a better job of paying attention to detail. That attention to detail was, was vital for us as a team in order to get better. And we also had to be able to tell each other tough things and to be able to accept it and act upon it and move on. And they kind of made a big deal out of that, and then he got after that. He got down to some more minute details about what we needed to do better. So he wrote on the board, and you know the 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 grease board. He wrote rebound. That that you know number one next on our list. We need we needed to be able to rebound at a higher level. So he wrote rebound, but he spelled it R E B O U B. So he he misspelled it rebound. And and I was sitting next to Billy King at the time, and Billy leaned over, and after hearing the attention to detail speech and tell each other tough things, he leaned over to me and said, do you think he wants us to point that out, you know, kind of the, to the attention to detail part? And I was like, yeah, go ahead, Billy, point it out, see how it goes for you. And so <laughs> he he didn't do that. We all kept quiet. But the whole rest of practice that day, every time a shot went up, guys were saying, rebound! Uh, and he never caught on to that one. He usually caught oh, on to the <laughs> where we would make fun of something that he did. Uh, we didn't do it very often because it, it didn't work very well. Um, but when uh, – a story as an assistant, um, you know, Coach K, I don't think he does it as much now because he's older now, but he, he was much younger back then. So in uh, – in I think it was 1990, 91 maybe. Um, it was early season, and, and he wanted the guys to be a little bit more ferocious. So loose ball, you know, uh, uh, go after it harder, stuff like that. So he's in the locker room. And he had planned it out. He had a ball with him. And and so he, he was trying to talk to him about, here's how you have to do this. And, and he's he's really worked up over it. He throws the ball down. He dove on it and dove on it and rolled around and kind of, you know, growled and everything and, and kind of got on the guys. That's how you have to do it. You know, you have to do this and do that. And then he got up, the meeting ended. He got up and, and back in the old locker room, he walked into the old coach's area. He had to walk up these three steps into the old coach's locker room and as soon as he got up the third step he dropped to his knees and got down on the floor and he had hurt himself and he didn't let the players see it but but he just said i got to stop doing this like and oh that's uh, awesome <laughs> and it was it was pretty funny like he he was willing to do things and and always has like he would um you know he he was he's always been really good about you know the motivating part and uh heck he came in one time the lights were off uh right before a game and he came in with a with a candle in front of his face and said, uh, you know, we came not to praise our opponent, but to bury them and then blew the candle out. And, uh, and then we were in pitch dark before he we went out on the floor. And he would do stuff like that periodically.
2: Okay, Jay, that, that was awesome. I We're going to get you out of here, but we have one final question for you. Anyone who follows you on Twitter knows that you are arguably the biggest fan in the world of Young Jeezy. I would argue that I'm the biggest, but I'm willing to share the award with you for right now really almost every morning you give the world that I got to go to work tweet that includes a lyric from a Jeezy song. But what I want to know from one biggest fan to the other, what's your go-to Jeezy song that you put on when you need a boost to your day?
1: For some reason, it's, it's my hood, which is the least kind of gritty Jeezy song you can have. Um, but, uh, but I, I like that. It, I, it it runs through my head a lot when I, uh, when I think about it. So I, I go to that one, but he's actually a really good dude. Um, uh, so I, I, I've enjoyed, you know, being around him and, and every once in a while he calls and says, well, you, uh, hey, I got something coming out. You want to be the one to drop it. And, uh, so I, I get a kick out of that. That's pretty cool.
2: Okay. Next time he wants to drop something, you got to let me know because I, I need to be a part of that too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Jay, thanks so much. This was, this was a great conversation. We, uh, we, admire your insight and uh your your history as as a great dukey uh, th- this has been a true highlight for us on the duke basketball report podcast we hope we can have you back again sometime soon keep doing what you're doing representing duke so well and and representing all of college basketball all of us are thankful
1: well i'm thankful for, for you guys the honors mine and anytime i can ever do anything for you don't hesitate you call anytime
0: So once again thanks so much to to jay for joining us donald let me go to you first man uh you got it you got a favorite part of that interview what what was the best stuff
2: well my favorite part was when we just dis- dis- uh decided to talk about young jeezy for a little bit that's one of my favorite rappers. Oh, yeah. it was great oh, yeah. uh uh so jeezy again if the release party's coming and jay should be a part of it but highlight your boy too um it's funny, I, I wanted to call that 94 feet with Jay Billis, but we, we talked for a lot longer than that. And we could have gone for like an hour. Like really, the only reason we only went for 30 minutes is because we wanted to be you know respectful of his time because he's a very busy man. But what wow, what a great interview. I just enjoyed his... His takes on everything are... Even if he, you know, there's some Duke people that don't like him for whatever reason. They, they think he's a homer, or some people think he's a homer. Some people think that he... uh rags on duke too much but
3: when you're talking to think that jay billis is a homer
2: yeah no well some are some do you know I, i'm gonna go you know whatever but i think when you listen to him you can't help but just like there was times in an interview where i'm just like it, like he's answering questions in such an eloquent way that you like for those of you out there we he should you really
0: be for, an analyst shouldn't he huh yeah he should be <laughs> but the thing about he like talk for,
2: right cameron exactly um so for those of you out there, we obviously prepared for this interview. We had a bunch of questions that we wanted to ask him, but some of these answers led to questions that we hadn't thought of. And we wanted to expand on some of the thoughts that he had because they were so great. And that's what makes for a great interview is when you can throw a script out the window and kind of say, yeah, but we're, we're going to talk about these things, but you get in depth into a conversation. And really at, at the end of it, we had to make sure that we we're like, Oh, by the way, we're almost at like 30, 35 minutes uh, and we need to let him go. But what a great interview and hopefully he can come back on because there's so much more we can talk to him uh, about and as college you know as the the season progresses uh, it'd be great to get him back on uh, just to kind of recap all of it
0: yeah I, I will say my favorite part as you can probably imagine was the stuff where he was talking about the the future of college basketball and how he would fix college basketball and his solution is so simple and so elegant i think that there would you know the, the notion of just hey let everybody it it is the wild wild west let everybody do what they will do and it'll work itself out i think that that solution would be really messy for a season or two and then normalcy would sort of be established and we would understand what the you know what the real way that this system was going to work what's what's actually feasible and everything would be fine and it would be fair to the players and it would be fair to the schools And I wish they would do it. They will never do it. But if I could make Jay Billish the czar of college basketball, I would sign on to that in a heartbeat. Sam?
3: I think the question that I asked him was actually the thing I wanted, I was most curious about, which is the thing about telling, you know, how you can distinguish this Duke team and, and tell that it's really a Duke team. And what he said was pretty illuminating. I know that he's still somewhat affiliated with the program. He comes to practices. He does some of the stuff over the summer with them, but he really said that Coach K, especially recently, has shown that he is willing to adapt. He's willing to to play zone. He's willing to change up that was way great stuff. That, that the that the team plays basketball relative to the players that he has on hand. And you know, when Coach K was primarily getting four-year players, sure, he could plan a little bit farther into the future and say, all right, we're gonna have senior JJ Reddick on this team. So it'll be nice to have freshman Greg Paul feeding him the ball. That is not really how things work anymore for, for Duke and, and at most top college programs, but he's still able to, to reinvent and say, all right, I've got this guy on board. We, we need this other guy, or, or, or this is going to allow us to play a certain way. And he's willing to say this year is more of a shooting year. This year is more of a defense year. This is a, whatever the, the, the talent of the team and that he's going to keep, iterating throughout the season I think that 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 coming from Jay Billis who's watching not only Duke closely but other top teams closely is sort of a nice reassurance that what Coach K is doing and what the Duke program is doing is really keeping with the times and that there's no there's no falling behind in Durham that was the that was the exciting part for me so yeah definitely thanks again to to Billis for making the time and I do hope we get him again Sam on that point
2: you know when he was talking about every year when he said when he was an assistant coach, coach K didn't have, you know, set parameters on who was going to be in the rotation. I'm sorry, the depth, uh, who was going to be in the depth of a team, who was going to get playing time, who was going to start that. He kind of entered every single season with a blank slate and said, okay, how is this going to work? And that even back then, I mean, you know, Jay Billis was an assistant coach almost 30 years ago. And so, when he, even when he was there, Coach K was still taking each team for what it was and adapting to the style of play that those players on that team were going to play. So I think that was really interesting to see that even through the evolution of college basketball, that one constant has remained the same throughout all those years.
0: News flash. This is how you become the greatest coach of all time. This is how you win more (laughs) games than anybody else. Easy to talk about, not easy to accomplish. And uh, again, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to echo it. Probably this will be the fifth or sixth time we've said it. Jay, thank you so much for joining us, for being a part of the Duke basketball report podcast. Great content from you brother. And uh, um, folks out there, if you have questions, comments, anything about that interview with Jay Billis, go, go to the Duke basketball report forums, Hit, hit us up with an email, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Like and subscribe our podcast, but but really, you know, reach out to us. Let us know if there's someone you want us to invite to, to have on the podcast as a guest. We will do our best. Sometimes we try and fail. Sometimes we try and succeed like we did this time. Um, for Donald Wine and Sam Klein, I am Jason Evans. Thanks again to Jay Billis for joining us. Thanks to all of you for listening to this special bonus edition of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We'll be back like in the next... 24, 36 hours or so to preview the Virginia game coming up next week. Um, Until then, Duke band, take us home.